Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us for a few moments as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that the book of Daniel, along with the Old Testament generally, the Hebrew Bible, those books are essential to a proper understanding of Jesus' gospel about the kingdom of God. There are many who think that the death and resurrection of Jesus are all that counts in the gospel, but the fact is that Jesus preached the kingdom of God gospel for some three and a half years before he died. Jesus, you see, was a saving rabbi and teacher. His words are essential to our salvation, not just his death and resurrection. Sometimes one gets the feeling that Jesus has been muted He's been allowed to be a dying Savior and a rising Savior, but he's been silenced in regard to his teachings. I even heard it said recently that Jesus came to do three days' work, to die and to be buried and to be raised from the dead. But there's much more to the life and the saving career of Jesus than simply his death and resurrection. Essential, of course, as those events are, Jesus was a saving teacher he came to seek that which was lost, and he did it by preaching the saving gospel of the kingdom. Jesus, in a famous statement in John chapter 3, said, Unless a person is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But the question is, how does one become born again? Well, it's by receiving the seed message of the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 19, When anyone hears the message or the gospel about the kingdom of God, the devil is there to snatch away what has been sown as a seed in his heart, so that he may not believe it and be saved. You will find that last phrase about believing and being saved in the parallel passage in Luke 8, verse 12. Matthew 13, verse 19, combined with Luke 8, verse 12, provide an excellent intelligence report on the activity of the devil. The devil knows well that that seed message about the kingdom of God initiates the new birth. We all know indeed that seed always creates a new person or organism, and so seed is essential for the rebirth process for Christians. They must receive in their hearts and minds that seed message concerning the gospel of the kingdom of God, Matthew 13, verse 19. And the devil, knowing this, is intent on snatching that particular message, that seed of the kingdom, that message about the kingdom. He's intent on getting rid of that message, on preventing it from taking root in our hearts, because he knows that the initial process of creating an immortal person is begun when that seed is received into our hearts. And the seed is not just the belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus, important as that is, it's the message of the kingdom of God which must take root in our hearts if the salvation process is to begin. Matthew 13:19, Luke 8, verse 12. In recent programs, we've begun to survey the book of Daniel. Now, the book of Daniel was one of the most precious writings known to Jesus, and in the book of Daniel he found all the principal elements of his ministry and his teaching Jesus recognized himself as the famous Son of Man found in Daniel 7, verses 13 onwards. And that Son of Man and the famous prophecy in Daniel 7 is the one destined to take over the reins of world government. 
But that's going to happen only when the final career of the Antichrist, that little horn of Daniel 7, comes to an end. There's going to be a period of unparalleled trouble and unequal tribulation just prior to the coming of Christ. And it's going to be at the hands of this final tyrannical figure known as the Antichrist, the little horn who has the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. He's going to prevail against the saints, against the people of God, that is, and he's going to wear them out for a period of a time, times and half a time, which apparently, according to the system given us in the book of Daniel, refers to a period of about three and a half years. But beyond that time of agony and trouble, when the saints are going to be persecuted on a grand scale, we know that there's going to be a marvelous vindication of the saints, they're going to be rescued, and indeed power will then be given to them. The story in the prophets of Israel is essentially rather simple. The bad news is that there's going to be persecution and trouble, but the good news is that the kingdom of God is going to take over from the anti-Christian forces and establish a genuine peace on the earth. We read of this contrast between the evil time and the good time coming afterwards, for example, in Daniel 7, verse 25 through 27. In verse 25 of Daniel 7, the Antichrist is going to speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and the saints will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time, a period apparently of about three and a half years. But the court will sit, we read in Daniel 7, verse 26, the court will sit for judgment, and the Antichrist's dominion will be taken away annihilated and destroyed forever. And then, in verse 27, the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven, that's to say, on the earth, will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Their kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey them. Now, that's the conclusion of the seventh chapter of Daniel and it gives us the typical picture of a time of trouble followed by a time of vindication and success and triumph for the saints when they rule in the kingdom of God with the Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ himself. Now, that same pattern of conflict followed by conflict resolution and peace in the kingdom is found in the famous 70 weeks so-called prophecy of Daniel 9. Actually, it's a prophecy of 490 years because the word weeks there that appears in our translation is actually a word implying a period of seven somethings, seven periods of a certain length. And what is that length in this context? Undoubtedly it refers to years. And so 490 years of time have been specially marked out in God's prophetic timetable for the completion of the desolations of Israel and Jerusalem and the subsequent advent of the kingdom of God in power and glory at Jesus' return to this earth. In Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, in four short verses, Gabriel was given an extraordinary revelation to communicate to Daniel. Those precious verses contain information essential for those living in the time of the end, just prior to the end of this age and the establishment of the kingdom of God in the future. Now, we don't know, of course, the date of that second coming, and those who set dates are always most unwise, and the history of Christianity is littered with attempts 
false attempts, in fact, to know the exact day and the date of Christ's coming. We cannot know that. What we can know, however, is that certain events must happen before Christ returns. The idea, incidentally, that the church is going to be removed from the earth during that time of tribulation is not true to our biblical documents. That's a kind of quick fix doctrine which enables people to think that they would not have to be tried or tested. But the Bible nowhere says that Jesus is coming back before this period of seven years. Indeed, in Matthew 24, verse 29, we read that immediately after the great tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and then the Son of Man will appear, and he will then gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. I have to tell you that the elect in the New Testament means the Christian church. Jesus addressed that whole prophecy in Matthew 24 to the church. The elect there are the Christians, and they're gathered after the tribulation. Matthew 24, 29 through 31. That's post-tribulation, if you like, or after the tribulation that the saints are going to be gathered. There's no hint in that wonderful prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 24 that he's going to come back before the tribulation. Nothing in that passage hints at such an event. The coming of Christ is always placed at the end of the tribulation. It's doubly important, then, that we take to heart most seriously the information given in the book of Daniel in regard to the time of the end, that period of trouble just preceding the arrival of the kingdom. In Daniel 9, verses 26 and 27, we have information about the death of the Messiah, first of all. He's going to be cut off after the 69 weeks, or 483 years, and he will not at that time receive the kingdom as his inheritance. He will have nothing, as the New American Standard Version words it in Daniel 9, verse 26. And then in the second part of that verse, we have a change of subject. We read there of the people of the prince who is to come. And that coming is a hostile coming. We're not reading there of Jesus, the prince, but of a hostile prince, a counterfeit messiah, who is going to come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the order of the words in the original there is important. I'll read it to you as it appears in the Hebrew text. We read that the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come, and his end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are decreed. It's most important to note that the end of this evil ruler comes in the same events. At the time when he tries to desolate and destroy the city and sanctuary, at the end of that time, he also comes to his end in a destruction. No sooner has he wreaked havoc on the city and the sanctuary in Jerusalem, but he himself will be destroyed at the end of those episodes. His end will be in the flood. The point I'm making is that Titus in A.D. 70, who is sometimes supposed to be the fulfillment of this prophecy, cannot in fact be the one described here. Titus, the Roman general who was instrumental in a terrible destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, did not come to his end at that time. He did not die in that war. And yet this person in Daniel 9, verse 26, will come to an end at the time when he's trying to destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, the prophecy here clearly says that he will achieve his aims. The city and the sanctuary will be destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come. 
But his end, that's to say the demise and the defeat of this evil ruler, will come in the flood. Now, the flood in the Bible points to a divine judgment, an overwhelming punishment at the hands of God, a divine judgment which will destroy this anti-Christian figure. His end will come in that well-known flood of judgment destined at the end of the age. And so here we have then a plain statement about the fate of the Antichrist. His end, we read in that second part of Daniel 9.26, will come with a flood. He's going to be killed, in other words, at the end of that period of destruction which he himself causes in Jerusalem to the city and the sanctuary. But now in verse 27 of Daniel 9, we learn of the events of that final period of seven years just leading up to the kingdom of God and the establishment of peace on earth. In Daniel 9.27 we read this, He, referring to this hostile ruler and leader, this military campaigner, this evil tyrant, he will make a firm covenant with the majority or the many for one period of seven years. Remember that this word weak in this prophecy stands for a unit of seven, seven years in this case. But then the prophecy goes on to tell us that for half of that week, for a period of three and a half years, this evil ruler will put a stop to sacrifices. Our time is running out for today. We invite you to request from us an article on Daniel and the 70 weeks prophecy. You may like to ask also for a tape of the program you've been listening to. We invite you to check our findings carefully in the Bible and join us again for our ongoing discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.